please, to Acts chapter 15. We'll be reading the first 12 verses of the text. We'll also make reference to Galatians chapter 3, um, but that will be later on into the message. As you recall, the Apostle Paul has been on a missionary journey. He's been from Antioch all the way around to Perga and then back again. He has, as Acts chapter 14 closes, he has returned to Antioch and he is rejoicing with the people, giving a report of all of the blessings the Lord had bestowed upon his journey, both he and Barnabas, and they are rejoicing together. Verse 27 of chapter 14 says, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And when they remained no little time with, and that they remained no little time with the disciples. Beginning in chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, converse, the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders had done, God had done through them to among the Gentiles. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you might speak to our hearts this morning. Help us understand some of the things that are here. We need to deal with division within Christianity and understand what is going on there so that we might know where to stand 
and which way to walk and how to be faithful. So guide us by your spirit and wisdom this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the ministry of Jeff Durbin. He is the pastor of Apologia Church in Tempe, Arizona. Early in September, he made a statement, and I don't think it was his, he was the first one to make it, but he's the closest reference I can find. Jesus is king. Then he followed up by saying, that's a political statement. Caesars, tyrants, and despots throughout history have understood that it is. Many modern Christians like to pretend that it is not. It's easy to understand why, because it's safer to do so. We see much in the Christian church, not just in America, but in the Christian church, a lot of division, a lot of misunderstanding about what the church is meant to be. The church is supposed to be a heavenly kingdom. doesn't look much like heaven now, but we wait. We are looking forward to, we are walking toward a heavenly kingdom. We are now called, identified as the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. That's the church. That's what the church is supposed to be. So imagine in your minds as we consider that this spiritual kingdom has walls. We have a gate and we have been given keys to the kingdom. People are allowed in through faith in Jesus Christ. No other way. This is a kingdom. He is our king. Our first allegiance is to him. Before any political party, our first allegiance is to him. Jesus is king, and if you recognize it, few people recognize it. Some of you may remember 30 years ago, there's big controversy, and still there, in Christianity, a lot of people are saying, well, I've made Jesus my Savior, but I've not yet made him my Lord. It means they've not made him king. Something is missing. Man's pride wants to vault himself up, exalt himself, even claiming Christ as Savior, exalt himself up that he doesn't rule over me yet. So there's problems in the church. We need to recognize it. The walls of the holy city, the Jerusalem in which we live now, are about as safe and secure as the southern border of the United States. Anybody can come in, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what you don't believe, doesn't matter how you live. The church is in trouble. We are divided over doctrine. Yeah, we're divided over doctrine. Throughout Christianity, we are very much divided over teaching. What do we understand about the Bible? What do we understand about the Lord? What do we understand about how we should live? These are all arguments over idols of the heart. 
I'll come to Jesus, but I'm not going to surrender this part of my life or this part, part that I believe. It's an idol of the heart. We are to give our loyalty to the king. We are to give his, our loyalty to, to the word and his truth. And many Christians have a very confused perception of loyalty and obedience and faithfulness. And given there is a fine line of discernment, should obedience be something that is paraded and displayed for all to see? You, do you get to be very proud of your obedience, your faithfulness? Look how good I am. Or should it be governed by our own love and devotion to the Savior who loves us? Be very careful. Obedience can be misdirected. You can be sincere. You can think you're being obedient. But if you're not being obedient toward the right things, toward the right principles, you're misguided misdirected, you're in trouble. Are we saved by faith or by works? That's what this whole chapter is talking about. And this is a big chapter. There's a lot here. We'll be back in this chapter again next week. I just wanted to look at a few things this morning. I really struggle. Father, what do I talk about here? And what do I talk about later? This has been a challenge. Three things I'd like to see. The law of God was never meant to provide righteousness. Sounds controversial, doesn't it? The law of God was never meant to provide righteousness. Second point, loyalty should be grounded in love for the Lord. Third point, love is, best motiv is the best motivation for Christian holiness. Simple. We've already given you the context of what's going on here in Acts chapter 15. And this chapter examines the difference between obedient to Christ by faith or obedience to the law of Moses. That's what's going on here. We all understand and would agree, I'm pretty sure we here today would, that we are saved by grace through faith. Does that nullify the commandments of God? No, it does not. If we understand what is happening within the early New Testament church, particularly in this account in Acts chapter 15, we can clear up a lot of confusion and answer a lot of questions. Remember, the book of Acts is a narrative. It's telling a story. It doesn't mean that it's fiction. It means it's just giving you a biographical account of everything that happened to the mission work in the early church. How did it spread? How did people respond? How did they remain faithful or how did they fail remaining faithful? And as you read through this chapter, it's easy to miss important details. And if you remember what I mentioned last week, you've got to ask yourself about the context. You need to think through the context. What was going on to the original audience, with the original audience, what did this mean to them? And if you can understand that, then it opens up a great deal of truth and insight. 
Acts chapter 15 begins with Paul and Barnabas back in Antioch giving praise to the Lord for the work that they had done over with the Gentiles, bringing them the gospel, winning many, many people to Christ, establishing and planting churches. And I'm sure they talked about the persecution and resistance as well. And then in the middle of all of this, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Where do these people come from? Judea was the region in which Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was, is found. Uh, our church and many of you live in Harnett County. Lillington is the county seat. Judea was to Jerusalem what Harnett County is to Lillington. And these men came down from Judea. They were Pharisees. We find that out in verse 5. So they probably were, they probably were very closely tied to the temple in Jerusalem. And it even suggests that they were part of the church in Jerusalem. And they said, Gentiles can't be saved unless they keep all of the law of Moses. That's a legalistic demand. Absolute obedience can't be done. Not possible. It was meant to instill some fear into their hearts, illustrating if you don't get the jab, you're not going to be safe. That's produced a lot of division and anxiety in our country. And here they were coming to, in a very similar way, you've led all of these Gentiles to the Messiah, and they haven't kept the law of Moses. They must keep the law of Moses or they can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas had been obedient. The early church elders who sent them, ordained them, commissioned them, had been obedient. And here these Pharisees coming down thought they were being obedient. Who was right and who was wrong? Somebody has to be right. Somebody has to be wrong. And this account is given to us in order that we might see and understand who is right and who is wrong. At the same time, we need to be careful and understand that obedience can be misdirected. Doing things for God does not save you. Doing things for the church does not save you. Doing things for the social culture around you, feeding the poor, working at soup kitchens, helping those who are oppressed, that does not save you. It does not guarantee or win or merit you eternal life. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, in his own words, gave men a warning about that. In Matthew chapter 7, said, 
Many will say to me in that day, and that day which he was talking about is the final judgment day. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Doing good things, even in Jesus' name, is no guarantee that you have eternal life. It's no guarantee that you're a citizen of the New Jerusalem, a part of the Holy City. Jesus was not just warning against false teachers. He was warning against false obedience. Be careful. Obedience can be misdirected. Are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? Paul and Barnabas thought they were being obedient. The Pharisees who came down accusing them of wrongdoing thought they were being obedient. We need to understand that the law of God is important. I am not diminishing that at all. In verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. As it begins in the early part of the chapter, it says, um, custom of Moses. Here it qualifies it a little more further. The law of Moses. The law of Moses is more than the Ten Commandments. When the scriptures talk about the law of Moses, it's important. It was there for a reason. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. His law is attributed from, or what is considered his law, Con contains the Ten Commandments, but is considered to contain his law and instruction from about Exodus 20 throughout Deuteronomy. It includes ceremonial laws, it includes dietary laws, it includes laws for cleanliness, it includes laws for judiciary, it includes financial laws. How, what do you do with your land when you're in debt? All of those are the law of Moses and many more things as well. All were meant to teach Israel how to live as people devoted to God alone. It set them apart as a people. It defined them as a culture and an identity. Deuteronomy chapter 7 the Lord through Moses told them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
The Israelites focused on obedience to ceremony more than faithfulness to the Lord. See, you can get, you fill your life up with doing good things and lose all affection and devotion and love for him. You can excuse, well, this is what he wants. He just wants me to do stuff. Let me just do things. Go back and read Isaiah chapter 1, where the Lord said, I am sick of your festivals. I am sick of your offerings. I am sick of the way, because your heart is not there. The law of God was never meant to provide righteousness. Turn your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Page 1156 in your pew Bible if that's what you're using. We've already read part of this chapter in our preface to worship. We'll be reading verses 15 through 18 of chapter 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with, man, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul here is referring to Genesis chapter 3, the promise that God gave to Abraham. That to your offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. The offspring was the promise of the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer. Coming through the line of Abraham. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The Apostle Paul reminds us that the law came 430 years after the promise of redemption. What's more important? What gives us, what provides, what furnishes our salvation, our redemption? It is the promise. It's not the law. The law is important. The law is vitally important. If you continue to read in Galatians you find that the law is our teacher. It is our tutor. It instructs us of our need. It shows us where we should be. And it points us to Christ, our Redeemer, our promise, our hope. Returning to the Old Testament again, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses told 
the Israelites. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be stiff-necked no longer. Are you obedient to a sign or a symbol, or are you faithful to love the, sim the very thing, the very one that symbol represents? Are you obedient to a sign or a symbol or to a task or a duty, or are you faithful to love the one that symbol represents? That's what we're asking this morning. With all of this narrative that we find in Acts, they're just coming down. Are we looking at keeping the law or are we looking at believing in Christ by faith? Yes, the law is important. It instructs us where we fall short. It shows us where we lack. And then it points us again to what we need to do. And it reminds us that we cannot do it. So then it takes us to the next step. There's your righteousness. The Lord, your Savior. Trust in him. He has promised to redeem. In the Old Testament, Abraham was asked to the promise was initially given in Genesis chapter 12. Then it was ratified in Genesis chapter 15 where Abraham was asked to prepare a sacrifice and then the Lord, the Lord ordained that sacrifice. Abraham fell asleep. He couldn't stay awake. God participated in that sacrifice. And then in Genesis 17, the Lord instructed Abraham as a sign of your faith for all your people. Mark your sons. We'll talk more about that next week. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was Kind of like a sacrament, very much a sacrament. It was a reminder of a promise Christ made, but they started to depend more on the sign than they did the promise. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 15. In the New Testament, that has been replaced with baptism. And there are a lot of people who get baptized in the church and thinking that's enough. I can make it into heaven. That's not enough. Circumcision never saved anyone. Baptism doesn't save anyone. But they are signs. They are symbols of a promise. And when we participate in that baptism, we are participating, we are stating, we should be stating by faith 
I'm trusting in my Redeemer. And this is my testimony for life that I am His. Most of us are very familiar with the wedding ring. That's a symbol. That tells everyone around you something very important, that you belong to someone else, and you are supposed to be faithful to someone else, and they are supposed to be faithful to you. How many marriages fail because they just become bound up by duty and lose all warmth and affection and heat? A husband and wife fail to talk, they fail to love, they fail to spend time together, they fail to share, but they can keep the home and the family together. What does that wedding band mean? What does it symbolize? It's supposed to be love until death do you part. It's supposed to be to symbolize a passion and a devotion that warms and nourishes your life and your heart. It's very much the same thing with our baptism. And it was supposed to be the same thing for the Old Testament Hebrew and their rite of circumcision. It should mean something. I remember when I was a teenager, senior in high school, I met a young lady who was a couple of years older than I was, she was in college. She was training to be a nurse tech. And she was very friendly in a, in a very safe kind of way. And I was kind of perturbed because I noticed she was wearing a wed just a simple gold wedding band, not a diamond. And she and I just got to chatting, and uh, are you married? No. And what's with the ring? Oh, that. I work in a recovery wing, and a lot of times when people, particularly the men, come out of air anesthesia, they just don't have very much self-control. They see this ring, they're likely to keep their hands to themselves. She understood what the ring meant. She was using it in kind of a deceptive way, but to keep herself safe. So people understand what that means. And when you wear one of these things, you're supposed to act like you're married. When you're baptized and you make a profession in faith in Christ, you're supposed to act like you're the Lord's, that you're a Christian, that you belong. Hence, the law points us toward that. It helps guide us. It helps to guide us toward that. The Ten Commandments have never been nullified. They are still pertinent to us today. And we must never forget it. Do you want to be faithful? To love the Lord your God? Then realize what he has done for you. 
And it's all because he promised to do so, that he would keep his word. Realize that he has forgiven your sins and given you everything in Christ Jesus. His righteousness, his eternal life, his crown, his righteous robes are yours forever. And you stand because of faith in him and faith in the promise that he redeems. You stand before the God, the judge of the universe, holy and righteous and blameless. Everything clean. That should make you want to be faithful to him even more. And if you can, ba if you can base your obedience to him on love for him, then keeping the Ten Commandments would be a delight. It would be a joy. It would not be a task or a duty. We shall return next week to this chapter. There's so much here. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day and for giving us one another. Thank you especially for giving us your Son, our Savior. Help us, Father, to be faithful to him in all that we do. Help us to love him deeply. It is in his name we pray. Amen.